I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 54th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that the unsaved are headed for the lake of fire, not because of their sin, but because they refuse to recognize that they need the Savior to facilitate their entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. July 26th, our lesson is the 54th part of our sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, and the text is in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. And in that passage of Scripture, the Bible says this. So when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, we've re completed our review of the last year of the public ministry of Jesus Christ, the purpose of which was to prepare the stage upon which Jesus was to make his ultimate sacrifice, giving his life on the cross. Jesus is to sacrifice himself during the Passover, which is the commemoration of the Jewish exodus from Egypt, and which is described in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 through 14, which says, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goat. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Now the Passover sacrifice as described in Exodus chapter 12 verse 5 was to be a male lamb less than one year old that was without blemish. The lamb without blemish denotes the purity symbolizing sinlessness required in a sacrifice. God is teaching the Israelites that their impurities can only be cleansed by something pure, just as we need a clean washcloth to cleanse ourselves when we take a bath. And as it is ineffective to bathe with a dirty washcloth, it is just as ineffective to try to cleanse our sins with a dirty or impure sacrifice. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God does not say that he is going to strike all of the firstborn Egyptian, but that he is going to strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The phrase in the land of Egypt is a geographical designation rather than an ethnic one. The Israelites are in the land of Egypt along with the Egyptians. And it is important for us to realize that both the Israelites and the Egyptians are equally deserving of being stricken by God. The events in the history of the nation of Israel show us that the Israelites were no better morally than were the Egyptians. The Egyptians sinned and worshipped idols, but the Israelites sinned and worshipped idols as well. God is not saving the Israelites because of any goodness that the Israelites possess. Rather, God is saving the Israelites because in his mercy, he has chosen the nation of Israel to be his people. God has chosen to love Israel despite their sinfulness, just as we choose to love our babies despite the fact that they keep us from sleep, they don't bring any income into the house, and they defecate in their diapers, creating messes that we have to clean up. Now, the key to understanding the concept of sacrifice is the recognition that you and I, like the Egyptians and the Israelites, create messes for God to clean up by our sin. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, tells us that we deserve death because the wages of sin is death. Now, the reason that Christianity and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins makes no sense to many unsaved people is that they are under the preconceived misconception that God is going to judge everyone's sins at the judgment. They understand that chapter, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 says, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. 
and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And since everyone that has ever lived or died is a sinner, this judgment is going to result in the eternal damnation of everyone judged. At this judgment, both the fellow that murdered the 32 students at Virginia Tech in 2007 and the 18-year-old girl that became pregnant out of wedlock and had an abortion so that her college plans would not be interrupted will both be judged and condemned as murderers. It's true that shooting up the college was illegal and resulted in the death of 32 young adults in the prime of their lives, while the abortion was not illegal and only resulted in the death of one fetus, someone of whom the girl had been convinced was not actually even a human being. But these facts will not make a difference to God, our judge. And the unsaved person cannot see how it is fair for God to condemn the girl to the same punishment to which he condemns the Virginia Tech killer. But the fact that the unsaved person can't see it does not negate the fact that the Bible says that it will happen. And since the unsaved person disagrees with God's conclusion, he may further come to the conclusion that the God that we Christians espouse is unjust. And to further add to the perceived injustice of God, the unmade, unsaved person may have personal moral standards that are as good or better than those of many Christians. Sinners often have a better moral track record than Christians. In fact, the only person that Jesus actually told that they would absolutely be in heaven with him had almost no moral standards at all as he was the murdering thief that hung on the cross next to Jesus. The thief confessed his crime during the exchange that he had on the cross with his partner, as Luke 32, uh, 23, 39 through 41 records. Then one of the criminals were hanged, blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then in Luke 23 and 42, the criminal said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, justice demanded that Jesus condemn this murdering thief even as did the Roman authority that was executing him. But in Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the criminal, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, how is it possible that God can send anyone to hell if he does not send this murdering thief there? Yes, the thief confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord, but he was hanging on the cross when he did it. The thief did not have to live a good Christian life for even one day. He did not even have to suffer the full anguish of the cross because less than four hours later, the Roman soldiers broke his leg so that he would die more speedily and could be taken down from the cross before sundown 
to allow the Jews to begin their Passover celebration on time. So God will forgive a murdering thief as he is being executed and allow him into heaven while sending a young girl having had a perfectly legal abortion to hell? To the unsaved mind, a God that would allow this to happen is terribly unjust. And many Christians don't think too much of this type of justice either. So they try to rationalize that which the Bible says so that people that are, quote, good, end of quotation, meaning that they are not perfect, but that they generally follow the moral law of God as well as do most people, can be included in the number going to heaven, whether or not they have actually accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. However, as the Apostle Paul tells us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, but that no one is justified by their observation in the law of the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the fact of the matter is that the law of God puts a curse on all of us, whether we are a murdering thief or not. From Adam down to the last person born today, none of us have avoided sin by completely following the law of God. So all of us are cursed or condemned by the law. When you are in court being tried because a police officer has cited you for traveling faster than the speed limit, the number of years that you have driven without a citation is not a factor in the mind of the judge. Your observation of the law does not justify you because on the day that the officer was recording your speed, you were breaking the law. 20 years of a clean driving record does not count when the radar gun clocks you at 15 over. In fact, your driving record is inadmissible as a defense. And if we go back to the girl that had the abortion, suppose she marries, bears 10 children, and raises them all to be productive adults. The fact remains that she murdered her first child. The 10 do not make up for the one. Now, we might feel that she is rehabilitated, but feelings don't count in the judgment. The objective fact is that despite her rehabilitation, her first child is still just as dead. The Apostle Paul tells us that regardless of how much she observes God's law, her observation of God's law does not make up for or justify her sin. She is not justified by her obedience, but rather she is cursed by her disobedience. However, the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of God's law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit, promise of the spirit through faith. So the only way to avoid the condemnation of the curse of God's law is through faith in Jesus Christ. The blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb on the doorpost 
save the firstborn of Israel from the death that they deserved and that the Egyptians both deserved and received. And we require a sacrifice, as did the Israelites, to save us from the penalty of death, meaning the eternal damnation that we deserve for breaking God's law. God the Father did not instruct us to kill a Passover lamb. Rather, God the Son, Jesus Christ, mercifully gave himself for us as a Passover lamb, a perfect sacrifice for sin, pure and without blemish. And Jesus Christ has written the names of those of us that have accepted his sacrifice in his book of life. God, the Holy Spirit, has put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, not of our houses, but of our hearts, so that when the final judgment comes, the judge of all things will pass over us, even as the death angel passed over the Israelites. And those that do not have the blood of Jesus Christ on their hearts will receive the fate of the Egyptians, as Revelation 20 and 15 says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we are not saved by our own goodness, that is, by how well we have observed the law in comparison with our peers, but we are saved by the application of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, on our heart. The lamb that the Israelites killed were symbolic sacrifices for their sins, but Jesus Christ is the actual sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ died of orthostatic collapse after a severe bloody beating with whips, followed by an arduous trek up a high hill carrying an 80 to 100 pound wooden beam tied to his extended arms across his shoulders. And when Jesus reached the top of the hill, he was stripped naked, pierced through the wrist with eight-inch Roman roofing nails, and fastened to the wooden beam. The beam was then lifted to a height of nearly 10 feet and placed in the slot of a vertical post embedded into the ground. At this point, Jesus' ankles were pierced by similar nails as were his wrists, and he was fastened to the vertical post. He was left hanging and bleeding until his blood volume decreased to the point that his heart could no longer pump th blood through his body, at which point he hung his head in the locks on his shoulder and he died. He died a public and horrifically painful death in order to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. And once there was absolutely no question that Jesus Christ was dead, he was then taken down from the cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. The old preacher said that Jesus Christ borrowed a tomb because he only planned to use it for just a few days. As three days later, Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead in order to inform us as to the objective way that we can have our sins forgiven. Jesus Christ died because the judgment about which we read in Revelation 20 is actually going to happen. And Jesus returned to life from the dead to verify to his disciples and us that the afterlife exists and that these things are going to happen and that those that are judged by the judge of all things on that day will have the lake of fire as their final destination. 
But because of our trust in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for our sins, his blood applied to the doorpost of our hearts by the Holy, Holy Spirit, he has written our names in his, the Lamb's Book of Life, as the qualification that we need to avoid condemnation and to enter heaven rather than being cast in the lake of fire as a consequence of our sins. As Revelation 21, 27 tells us, but thereby no shall, there shall by no means enter heaven anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John three sixteen and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, shed his blood on the cross of Calvary because he loves us. We are not saved because of our own merit, but rather in spite of our lack of merit, simply because God loves us. And it is my impression that human beings are born helpless because God is giving us as parents the opportunity to experience the type of love that he has for us. A newborn baby actually has no redeeming social value and young children have little more. Adolescents may actually have less. Children are a problem from, for parents from the time that they are born until they leave the house and get married. And I can remember being awakened by my wife before day in the morning because the baby was crying. She woke me up to go get the baby so she could nurse him without getting out of our nice warm bed. And some of you may have been in the same situation. Ask yourself objectively, what did I get out of it? And the logical answer is nothing. Now ask yourself, then why did I do it? The emotional, not logical answer is because I love my wife and my child. Well, I can understand your love for your wife because she is your life partner and your sex partner. But what is the point of loving the baby? The fact of the matter is that there is no point. In terms of financial benefit, I have actually done my father no earthly good. He saved his money and managed it well, and even now he does not need any financial contributions from me. As a matter of fact, he periodically contributes to our church and has given me more money in the last year than I have given him. His financial contribution for me has been negative, and I have actually done him no earthly financial good, but love is not a matter of earthly goods or dollars and cents. Love is God's decision to act spontaneously and favorably toward us, though we have no merit of our own. The justice of God required Jesus to give his earthly life on the cross of Calvary in order for us to be saved. But it did not require Jesus to spend the year that we have discussed in the previous 53 lessons in our series in public ministry with his disciples. But Jesus spent that year ministering to and with the disciples 
so that he could have the firsthand experience of developing a love relationship with those 11 men, even as we develop a love relationship with our children. Jesus was just as much of a parent to those men as we are to our children. The ministry of Jesus Christ changed the love of God for mankind from an abstract theoretical phenomenon to a concrete, fervent affection between Jesus Christ and the 11 men that he tutored, nurtured, and with whom he eventually developed a loving, personal relationship. John 13 and 1 tells us, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. God loved the world, and Jesus Christ personified that love by developing a firsthand love relationship with those men with whom he walked. And human beings cannot develop a love relationship without physical proximity. So Jesus ate and drank with his disciples virtually every day of this last year of his ministry. But although Jesus developed love for his disciples, all of Jesus' disciples did not develop love for him. One of the disciples did not return Jesus' love, but rather facilitated God's plan for Jesus' sacrifice. From Jonathan M. Cheney's Harmony of the Gospels, Jesus Christ, the Greatest Life, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 reads, The Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were two days away. When Jesus was finished saying these things, he told his disciples, You know the Passover is coming in two days, and then the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At that time, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest. Caiaphas, in order to decide how to arrest Jesus and secretly kill him, they said, we can't do it during the feast or the people will cause an uproar. They said this because they were afraid of the people. Now, Jesus' great teaching and his miracles had engendered such admiration from the Jewish pilgrims that had come to the Passover that no one could even argue with Jesus in the presence of the multitude, much less arrest him. Jesus and the Jewish pilgrims were going to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, and those that wanted to arrest and execute Jesus assumed that both Jesus and the multitude would be leaving Jerusalem at the end of the feast. Thus, they would have no chance to arrest Jesus once the feast was over. So you can understand their delight, when Judas approached them, the Bible continues, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. He left to consult with the chief priests and captains about how he might betray Jesus to them. Judas said to them, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders of the people were delighted when they heard this and promised to give Judas money. Judas agreed, and they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas looked for an opportune time to betray Jesus when the crowds were gone. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 tells us, For the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And Judas was certainly the poster boy for this passage of Scripture. Even as Jesus and the disciples were planning to celebrate the liberation of the nation of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, Judas was busy figuring out how to use his relationship with Jesus Christ to make money for himself at the celebration. Now, I doubt that Judas ever actually thought that Jesus would allow himself to be crucified or even arrested. The Jewish leaders had tried to arrest Jesus several times before, and Jesus simply walked through the midst of them and went on his way. The disciples knew that Jesus' access to the power of God would allow him to thwart any plan that the Jewish leaders developed to take him. Of course, the disciples did not anticipate that Jesus would allow himself to be taken, although Jesus told them seven times that he would be arrested and killed. The disciples thought that their ability to fight, coupled with Jesus' power, would allow them to hold off an army. So Judas did not anticipate that his betrayal would actually lead to Jesus's arrest, but figured that creating another confrontation between Jesus and the Jews would allow him to pick up a quick 30 pieces of silver with no real harm being done. After all, the Jews had confronted Jesus several times during the week and couldn't even out talk Jesus, much less do anything to him. And since Judas cared for money more than Jesus, Betraying Jesus for money seemed like a good idea to him. And while Jesus was planning his betrayal of Jesus, Jesus was planning his last celebration of the Passover during his earthly life. He told Peter and John in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Go into the city, and there you'll meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him in whatever home he enters. Say to the man of the house, The teacher says to you, My time has come. Where is the guest room at your house for me to eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. This is where you should prepare for us. His disciples left and went into the city as Jesus had instructed them. There they found everything as he said it would be, and they prepared for the Passover. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. At the appointed time, he reclined at the table with the apostles. He told them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not observe it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus then gave them all a glass of wine. And then as John 13, 3 and 4 tells us, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, and that he came from God and was going to God, got up from the supper, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, if you travel to someone's home in inclement weather, your shoes or boots will probably be wet and or soiled from the rain or snow. When you enter the home, it would be courteous of you to take off your footwear rather than tracking dirt inside of the house. Now, Jewish men in Jesus' day generally traveled in sandals 
So their feet became soiled as they walked on the dusty road to their destination. When they entered someone's home, they generally washed the dirt off of their feet, just as we would take off our footwear. Well-to-do people had slaves to wash the feet of travelers as they entered the house. Foot washing then was considered the job of a person with a low status. When Jesus and the disciples reached the upper room to celebrate the Passover, they found that the owner of the house had not assigned a slave to wash feet and none of the disciples volunteered to do so. Jesus stripped down as would a slave, wrapped a towel around himself, and then, as John 13 and 5 tells us, then Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, wiping them with a towel around his waist. Since foot washing was the job of a slave, the bold Peter protested that about which Jesus was doing. John 13, 6 through 10 records, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, do you intend to wash my feet? You don't understand what I am doing, Jesus answered, but later you will. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. If I don't wash you, answered Jesus, you have no part with me. Lord, then wash not only my feet, Simon Peter replied, but also my hands and my head. Jesus responded, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. He is completely clean. And you disciples are clean, although not all of you. So Jesus told Peter that their relationship was contingent upon Peter having his feet washed by Jesus. Jesus is humble giving of himself as he washed the disciples' feet, dusty from the road and sweaty from the exertion of the day, was a symbol of the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make on the cross to save our souls, we who are dirty and sweaty from sin. Paul speaks of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, saying, Jesus being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So to be the sacrifice for our sins, Jesus descended from his heavenly status to become a mere man and took on the role of a slave. He made himself, as Isaiah 53 says, humble as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ gave up heaven to become a slave to take care of us. Just as a loving mother with a Ph.D. would give up the status of her powerful position to take care of her infant. And Peter, being the leader of the disciples after Jesus, protested that the Lord should not be the one washing feet. Peter did not take the towel, the basin, or the water from Jesus because Peter thought that e rather than either he or Jesus, someone lower on the chain of command should be washing feet. And the unsaved man might, as did Peter, consider the cross of Calvary too degrading for the Savior of the world. 
The unsaved man might want someone that lived and died in great pomp, glory, and honor, rather than a man that was crucified as a criminal, as his Savior and Lord. The unsaved man might not find Jesus to be an adequate Savior, thinking that anyone that washes feet does not rank high enough to be his Lord. The unsaved man might be too proud to come to Jesus, a Savior that washed feet and died the death of a criminal on the cross of Calvary. But the fact of the matter is that receiving this humble, foot-washing, dying Savior is the only way to get into heaven. It is not by the works of righteousness that we have done that we can avoid hell because in the sight of God, all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag. It is only by the ministry of Jesus Christ that we can be saved by accepting and emulating his humility as he washed the feet of his disciples and then allowed himself to be stripped and hung on the old rugged cross for everyone to see. It is only by adopting Jesus' humility rather than, rather than holding on to our preconceived misconception of our own goodness that we can be saved. Jesus finished his explanation to Peter by saying that all of the disciples were not clean because Judas was still in the midst. And then in our text, Jesus spoke to all the disciples and, and to us as he said in John 13, 12 through 17. So when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God has given us the plan. Our salvation will not come by our protestations of righteousness, or by our comparisons of ourselves and our goodness with that of anyone else, but only by our humble acceptance of our sinfulness and our need for the blessed ministry of Jesus Christ. The unsaved are lost, not because of their sin, as we are lost or saved all sinners, but because of their arrogance in that they refuse to recognize that they are not good enough to merit God's kingdom. They make excuses to justify their righteousness rather than accept the fact that they are sinners that are just not humble enough for heaven. Heaven is not a place for good people, but only for humble people, because only the humble can be saved. We are not greater than our master, Jesus Christ, who gave us the ultimate example of humility. If he washed feet and suffered embarrassment and death on the cross of Calvary for our sins and the sins of others, we must certainly humble ourselves, put away our protestations of righteousness, and throw ourselves on the mercy of his amazing grace 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Christian God, our Father, we thank you this morning for that which you have done for us. We thank you for the humility that you had to descend from the glories of heaven, from your throne of grace and power above all things, and to make yourself of no reputation, to come in the form of a bond servant, and come in the likeness of men and humbling yourself as a man becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And we thank you, Lord, and we know that God has highly exalted you and has given you the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we thank you for the wake-up call, Lord, that we might know the difference between that which you have done and that which the world prizes, and that we can fall out with the wicked ways of this world and come to you crying, what must I do to be saved? Well, now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord... We thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.